Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end I speak to authors and sundry book people about what it takes and sometimes what it means even to squirt a book or story into the world. I offer feedback on listeners' first pages and sometimes I hold forth on a topic relevant to creativity. Today, dear friend... Hi, how are you? Hope you're having a variety of magical or merely nice experiences. So this episode I want to offer some advice for, if you'll forgive the clickbaity hyperbole, writing smashing non-fiction and stroke or articles. Though I should say before all you fiction writers lunge for the pause button, this is a technique that is easily transposed into the world of stories. And I shall explain in reasonable but not exhaustive detail a little bit later how to do that for blistering results. Well, you know, good results. Sorry, I've been watching fitness videos on YouTube a lot recently. I seem to have picked up some of the lingo. I did goblet squats for 30 days. Now I can crack walnuts with my ring piece, etc. Right, so today's piece of advice of actionable advice, and I think it's uh, less a a broad prescription and more of a move, you know, like a whirlwind kick or the hundred crack fist of the North Star, but but, but less fatal. Um, I'm going to put this under the title, this whole section I'm about to do, Write Like a Vicar. Right, so the the classic format for a sermon, at least in certain parishes in Middle England, perhaps exemplified by Radio 4's thoughts for the day, goes something like this. On autumn mornings, as the air turns crisper and the leaves begin to curl and fall from the trees, I like to ride my bike along the towpath by the canal. I, and a few of us who use the path, noticed that the lovely bramble bushes and grass verges were getting covered with litter. Plastic bags and crisp packets left by blackberry pickers, cigarette butts and sandwich wrappers dropped by professionals on their way into town, and empty drinks cans left by teenagers who sometimes congregate by the water to listen to pop music and get away from their parents. We didn't like to see our lovely path getting spoiled by rubbish, so we had a meeting and some of us decided to meet once a month and clean it up. And that's a bit like Jesus. Obviously the turn is usually a bit more subtle than that. It doesn't usually say, and that's a bit like, like I just did there, but rather it does it does the equivalent by sort of mentioning one thing immediately after another, and in doing so, invites the re- the listener or, or reader to 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 infer a connection. So it, so it's usually more along the lines. When Paul was in Athens, he saw that the city was full of idols. He wanted to clean it up, but he knew he couldn't do it alone. So he spoke to people. So gold and silver idols, in in this case, being represented by fag ends and empty packets of frazzles. That's the move, right? That is the the twist and, and the technique. Uh, that I uh, that I want to talk about today was was described by public radio stalwart Ira Glass in a video many years ago, and I remember watching it and 
thinking surely it can't be that simple and then listening to lots of this american life episodes which is the uh, podcast and radio show that he presents and and going oh yeah they they do do that don't they um so he 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 talked about it as as consisting of two building blocks the anecdote and the moment of reflection so the anecdote is literally this happened then this happened and then i thought of this and that made me remember this it's just all the stuff sequentially but it can have you remembering things or having thoughts and feelings the moment of reflection is the bit where you go and here's what this means here's why i'm telling you here's the greater lesson or the theme or how this links into a bigger issue that affects us all as the demigod maui puts it in the song you're welcome in the hit disney movie moana having listed some of his achievements quote what's the lesson what is the takeaway don't mess with maui when he's on a breakaway which is a, a sort of um it's implied by the what he's doing on screen the, the the breakaway being a sort of moment in basketball where you uh, break through the defenders and go to shoot a basket in in them it's it like it makes more like in the film just a little sidebar like i think what's clever about moana having watched it approximately uh, 50 times is is that uh, all the demigods all the mythical characters uh, get to make references out of their geographical and historical frame of reference so maui gets to do that bit of basketball in his song and he gets to make a joke about tweeting uh, because he's he's a demigod and he has access to stuff that he wouldn't know uh, whereas the other characters when they sing their songs and uh, do their bits uh, all reference only stuff they know in their world i think it's actually quite pleasingly consistent throughout the movie um so look i i i think fundamentally just to get back to what we're talking about today like this move it, 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 you know it can feel forced and even a bit cheesy when you're writing non-fiction at least at first when you're aware of it and it's your work right because you know you're doing it right you understand you're employing a formula and that seems like cheating or it seems a little bit hack but um it, it works i think readers experience it as good as, as engaging writing i am not by any stretch of the imagination before i get letters suggesting that this is the quote unquote correct way to open a chapter in a non-fiction book be it memoir pop science or indeed a cunning left field blend of the two biography or, or whatever i i know that there are many different ways to skin the particular uh, writing cat and and anything that you say sort of prescriptively is this is the way to open a chapter people will be able to find really really good examples of how you can turn that on its head in in the same way that um in sort of classic 3.5 dungeons and dragons orcs generally make better fighters than wizards but you can do a build where an orc's a wizard. Wizards don't generally use armor because it restricts them from doing their gestures to cast spells. But you can find ways to sort of build around it to make it possible for someone to be a spellcaster with armor. If I'm not going to do 
Dungeons and Dragons metaphors for the analogies for the rest of the, the episode. But the, the point being, of course, there's always ways round this. But my point is, like, if you're stuck, if you're fuddled, if you've got a pancake stack of cool facts and interesting opinions and chunks of interviews you've done and you're like, flip, how do I even start eating all these delicious maple syrup drenched pancakes? What side do I start from? Flipping heck, I'd need a bite radius the size of a bin lid to make a dent in this thing. This gives you a way in. And it works for, I, I imagine, any topic. I've not written about every topic technically possible in the world, so I, I, I admit I haven't road tested this. But say you want to write about um, sexuality in the 1930s. Absolutely colossal subject, obviously. So many angles, so many ways in, so many potential starting points. And I know from experience of writing non-fiction, not about that topic, but you think, oh, well, what I'll do is I'll learn about the topic and that'll make it easier. But of course, it doesn't make it easier. It makes it harder because you learn more about it. You understand more. You, you get a greater sense of the breadth and scale of what you're trying to deal with, of the nuance involved, of the different opinions that are flying around it. And it's harder and harder to find a starting point. You, you, you OK, so you're now learning about it and you learn some humility, you learn the magnitude of the task you've taken on, and that can be paralysing. And maybe if you've ever tried to write a non-fiction book yourself, you've, you've, you've hit that point at some point. Maybe that's the point where you gave up. Maybe you've got one that's sitting in a drawer now where you made some notes for it, you did some reading, you kind of played with the idea you might write the book, and the more you learned, the less qualified you felt. This can be like a really scary moment, right? And, 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 you know, you could open with some sweeping statement that sort of sets the scene, that lays the checkered picnic blanket, so to speak, on which you can begin to unpack your thesis. So, for example, if we were looking at uh, sexuality in the 1930s, you could open with um, the 1930s were a decade of change and violent contradiction. Like You could say that. Right. And it would be uh, true. It's also so broad that it might be plausibly said of literally any 10 year period since the dawn of time. I, uh, but I think rarely if you did write, write that right, if you did kick off an article or a nonfiction book uh, on that subject with that line, I, I think it would be an unusually uh, engaged editor who weighed in to go. No, what a terrible first line. How dare you? Because it's actually not noticeably egregiously bad. It's inoffensive as a first line. It's it's not obviously false. It, it, it's not it's it, construction wise. It's understandable. It doesn't clunk. We're not like, oh, you, you know, you don't wince when you hear it. But does it make you want to read on? The 1930s were a decade of change and violent contradiction. I mean, it sort of sounds fine, like maybe a bit. It's quite, it's okay. Like it's making a declarative positive statement. You know, it doesn't hedge with could have been said to or it might plausibly be argued or in some quarters it is thought, you know, like it commits to the idea. It's short, it's comprehensible. I don't think if I'd picked up an essay or a book on sexuality in the 1930s, 30s you know the assumption would be that I was interested in that topic I, I'm not particularly but in this example right I sort of chose it at random um you know the assumption would be that I, I 
I would be there is like a little bit of a contract between me and the author there and so I pick it up that wouldn't be enough to put me off I don't think I'd hit the that first line and and nope out of reading further but is is, is that the bar is that the incredibly low bar that you want to clear with your work you know the the, the, the your prose and structure aren't so incredibly jarringly bad that they don't immediately make a sympathetic reader stop reading on line one. Because that, I want to suggest to you, sort of positively, you know, people sometimes say, oh, you know, Tim, you're really harsh about, uh, you know, people's writing and stuff. I don't think I am, really. I think what I'm saying is, have confidence in your ability to write better than just <laughs> like like not obviously immediately offensive like what i'm saying is you're a better writer than that and and like with just like a few moments thought with actually not that much thought at all you can achieve good or great writing no matter what subject or topic that you're taking on and and why not shoot for that and you can have great fun doing it. You know, it's not, it's not about me going like, you bastards writing. I'm saying like, why don't we all write stuff that's great that people want to read that's going to make your work appeal to a wider audience and the people who do want to engage with it will also have a lovely time doing so. That's like, that's cool, right? We're just basically, we're setting out a little dinner party for people who want to come along and we just want to, consider their experience and make sure everything's like clean and we choose some nice plates and maybe put out some nice table settings and like a little thing of flowers or a centerpiece at the middle of the table and then we make the food nice like we could just make it sort of non-poisonous and, and certainly like as a baseline you know getting a turkey thermometer so you don't give everyone food poisoning and washing your hands like those are really great entry-level things to talk about right <laughs> like do those things but what without sort of like breaking ourselves in half to make everything perfect which you know I have been guilty of in the past without succeeding but you know just freezing myself wanting everything don't touch anything everything must be perfect for this I mean like what is the worst dinner party in the world it, it it's the one the classic kind of comedy dinner party where the host is like <laughs> is like a cat with its back arch just walking everyone is walking on needles everyone is treading carefully because they know this person is like is everything okay don't you know don't break anything everything must be laid out perfectly you know the, the boss is coming around and we want every moment of this dinner party it must all go without a hitch everyone's going to have a miserable time right it's going to be horrible i'm not suggesting that you write like somebody has a gun to your head but Let's just consider the possibility that we're better writers than maybe we give ourselves credit for. And all we have to do is like, okay, you know, slow down, breathe. Now let's have a little look at this and see if we can't do something that makes us excited about our work. That makes us go, yeah, fucking hell, great. You know, <laughs> right? So like, because I think, like, I'm sorry to be awful, but I think we many authors who are academics first and, and writers second and that's you know fine they know their topics inside out right but I, 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 I and I think that's you know that line 
the 1930s were a decade of change and violent contradiction is, is often all that editors and agents push them to achieve. You know, it's kind of let's not rock the boat writing, you know, inoffensive, comprehensible prose, writing that does the job. So you pick up the book and you read a chapter and you think, yes, this is a book on sexuality in the 1930s. By the way, I've not actually been reading any books on sexuality in the 1930s. I genuinely like put those words together in my head, at least at, at random, uh, just so we were talking about a specific topic. So I'm not like subtweeting uh, a bland book on <laughs> sexuality in the 1930s that I've read. And this whole episode is just like me passive aggressively digging at an author that I'm too, too much of a, a wimp to come out and just say, you wrote a bad book. I'm not talking about it. Uh, please, if, if someone is listening who wrote a book on their thesis on sexuality in the 1930s, and now it sounds like I'm just like roasting them in the most nasty sort of backhanded way I'm not it, it was just I just wanted a subject that was a specific because it's better to deal with specifics and abstracts but like do you know what I mean like I don't think it's a bad sentence it might even have its place at some point during a book you know it's okay to have these moments that orient a reader that frame simple thesis statements from which the author then expands it, I, I'm not hating on simplicity and I'm not hating on kind of you know, like the obvious, which is is sometimes a bit like punctuation. It sometimes feels just like a kind of full stop and capitals. Yes, it's not needed necessarily. Yes, line breaks aren't necessarily needed. But what it can be is like a signpost or a little place for the reader to stop. You know, it can be like a little log in the forest that the, the reader can sit down on and have a breather and maybe unwrap a sandwich. Like it is, is this moment of of pause and summary that can it's just a courtesy to the reader and it can crystallize or summarize or wrap up everything that they've just consumed because our memories aren't perfect and it can help just hammer that point home like all of these things are are fine and good i'm not <laughs> i'm not i'm not attacking them i'm just saying as an opening bid you know like i i i just don't think this is a solid shop window I, I don't think it's a hook especially when we're working in the the realm of you know like abstract concepts you know the, that sentence has decade change contradiction there are no concrete nouns in that sentence the 1930s were a decade of change and violent contradiction you know there's there's nothing you can touch taste smell or hear it it's all conceptual and I realise, right, I know a hook sounds gimmicky, particularly to certain mindsets, you know, which long to be taken seriously and feel that any concession to shudder entertainment demeans both them and the reader. And I, and I know from having read, you know, like over a thousand academic papers over the last couple of years researching my last book that nuance isn't about like weasel words like sometimes the truth is is difficult and it involves a lot of mostlys and sometimes is and it doesn't fit into sort of easy sloganeering and there's loads of exceptions and that's just the truth of reality and to kind of go back on that will make your work maybe sort of more punch punchy and better propaganda but it might not be true and you might have a commitment to being honest and truthful fine but 
I'm not saying you have to open with like a dead body in a locked meat freezer and a pen penguin wielding an ice pick, though. If you don't, you're leaving money on the table. That would be an awesome first paragraph. But to start with a story, you know, or, or a narrative, at least, with something that engages the reader's five senses, something that exists in a clear narrative present and gives us a person, you know, a person with a problem. Like, like I don't know how to tell you this, but it just works. Like the Vicar's Sermon example I get, gave at the beginning, litter on a towpath, that's not gripping, right? It's, it's not intrinsically, you know, it's not an existential threat. And, and and nor was it gripping, gripping when I put it in, you know, the, the, the Vicar's Sermon format. But it does have a certain stickiness, right? You know, like for something so inconsequential and low stakes, it's surprising how when you start talking about litter on the towpath, uh, you know, when you present it as a short anecdote, you you at least are more likely to stick around to hear what happened. Uh, and where the person is going with this. So let's take sexuality in the 1930s, if we're going to use this as an example. What if, instead of starting with the 1930s were a decade of change and violent contradiction, we opened with something like... In the early spring of 1929, a young Alfred Rouse made his way past the white apple blossom and dark tulip beds of Magdalen to stand at the edge of the frog pond. Later... He would write in his diary, quote, The horror of it, around the edges, these inseparable couples, fixed in the vice-like clutch of natural necessity, sometimes killing each other, squeezed to death, the small male embracing the inflated body of the female with tight, muscular, subhuman arms. At the bottom of the basin, loathsome females waiting their turn to be impregnated, barely distinguishable from the mud sediment in their stupid ecstasy. On the surface, a floating mass of gelatinous spawn, each jelly a nucleus of black life. Here and there among the leaves, the bodies of dead frogs, exhausted by that embrace, flung aside from their single purpose in the scheme of life. End quote. Now, I think we can agree that it's a, a little unfair of old A.L. Rouse, as he would later style himself, to criticise frogs for having subhuman arms. I, I gently suggest it would be more horrifying if he'd looked down to see they had fully developed human arms. But overall, like, isn't that a more compelling start to a book or indeed a chapter in a book or an article? There we are on the cusp of a new decade, a decade that we know is going to culminate in war and death and piles of bodies. A decade characterised both by new drives for liberation in human sexuality and new waves of repression. And here is this tragically conflicted young man reacting with what he described as horrified fascination, as he puts it. Um, frogs mating in a pond, right? Like that. To me, it, it, it just so happens, right? I, I, I should say I, I, this wasn't... I just pulled this book down from my shelf. Um, I happened to have it on hand. Uh, it, it just so happens that uh, A.L. Rouse was in love with a German uh, called Adam von Trott, who would later take part in Operation Valkyrie, the attempted assassination of Adolf Hitler, and who was executed for it. So this whole crystallised moment there in the frog pond uh, at Oxford, you know, before he knew that this was going to happen, um, teases out longing and shame and death in this visceral, concrete way that 
uh, might frame some of uh, an author's discussion on uh, sexuality in the 1930s. Later on, you might even say that when Rouse writes of, quote, tight muscular subhuman arms or a floating mass of gelatinous spawn, he's employing a bit of crunchy specificity. Oof, I'm back, baby! Now, crucially, I, I very clearly didn't write most of that intro. I just quoted from someone else's work. But that's the great thing about non-fiction. Going to sources, you know, getting actual documented accounts and slamming them down on the page is totally legit. But my point here is, it is mostly, usually, don't come for me, there are always exceptions, preferable to start with the particular by drilling down into one specific example that falls like a drop of ink into clear water and begins to billow out into shapes. So then, once you've done this, right, once you've given us the view from the ground, the human stakes, once you've placed us in a three-dimensional world that gives us stuff we can picture and feel, that conveys something experiential rather than conceptual. Then you can employ the beautiful human capacity for abstract thought to zoom out and frame it if you like, if you want, if you feel it's necessary. We can get that broad thesis statement, that slightly stilted, oversimplified summary you hear on TV history programmes where the presenter stands outside a, a National Trust property and says something like, uh, but with discontent rising, the king would discover that the door to a peaceful resolution was about to close. And then they go inside and sort of close the door. Bang. But snark aside, actually, there, you know, there are, a f uh, you know, actually a few moments where you just state in simple language what you mean can be really helpful to the reader. Don't patronise them. Sure, it's always frustrating to me when an author steps in to explain something I inferred already as if I'm a moron and it kind of cheats me of, of my little Easter egg or my, having worked it out. You know, they step in and I'm like, oh, well... You know, who's the, who is this for? And also now everyone else has caught up. You know, I quite liked feeling that we were on the same page. It's just, it's not, it's not good, right, when someone steps in like that. But I've had issues in the past where, you know, when I'm writing my own stuff, where I convince myself the only way to tell a story or to write non-fiction is to do it all loopy, you know, through implication and innuendo and subtle nods. And of course, that's not true at all. You know, we don't order a sandwich a deli through kind of winks and inference unless you're a creep like you just say what you'd like and our language has the ability to do that and that's really useful and we shouldn't throw away that tool just because we want to be all arty farty like it, it it's cool and interesting and bold and often a massive relief for the reader if you just step in on occasion and boldly state what you mean like it, it can just frame everything and anchor everything in a way that's just like, phew, cool. Um, so I want to give you one more example from non-fiction. And actually, I apologise, but it is a short extract from one of my pieces of non-fiction. I mean, so was the last one as well, but it was just a completely imagined book that I invented for the purposes of this. So I, I've not actually given you any examples from from the rest of the world. And, and like, I'm partly choosing to do this because um, I have the right to read from my own work, be it published or entirely invented. But please rest assured, I don't intend to continue making a habit of approvingly citing my own stuff as if it represents the pinnacle of the craft. I, I know the thing I enjoyed least about David Lodge's otherwise pretty entertaining 1992 book, The Art of Fiction, is how he keeps using examples from his own books alongside classics of the Western canon. 
And his stuff in the examples he gives at least never stands up well by comparison. It's just a bit, you know, come on, David, there's a time and a place. You know, maybe before including three of your own novels, you might consider some women or writers of colour. What's that? No? No? You'd rather reference all three books from your campus trilogy instead? Oh, okay. So now, having hung multiple lampshades on that particular issue, I'm just um, picking an example from my latest book, Coward, because it's an example that's still clear in my memory of my using what I considered to be the vicar technique. Uh, And I should say, actually, before I get vicars writing in, um, of course, they themselves are merely following in the footsteps of Jesus himself, right? That was famously Jesus's shtick. He'd he'd speak to a crowd and explain a particular uh, sort of ethical or religious principle um, by telling a parable, which somehow illuminated it through experience because stories are how we process things right and I I think if you know were Jesus to return today you'd probably find him employing that same rhetorical device in whatever guise or medium he chose to broadcast his message he wouldn't announce his true identity of course right so here's the bit and it comes from a chapter pretty near the end of the book, and I, 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 it, 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 I was going to say it goes on a while. It's not a great, <laughs> not a great hook to to whet your appetite. Now I won't uh, apologise for for it because that's one of the b- things that I sort of blanket ban whenever I'm uh, running workshops. Is you're not allowed to apologise for your work before you read it out because one, like we we all we all know your shit. Like we we're all shit here. Like so, j- let's just take that as red to stop trying to like guilt us into going easy on you by by fawning by sort of feigning weakness weakness and, and rolling onto your back and and mewling and also like if everyone does this we'll be here all day because it sets a standard it like then makes it socially awkward for someone to read out without doing it going guys just uh i didn't really know what i was doing but here here it is anyway like if some if six people do that and then the seventh just reads their bit out. They they look by the group standards like a psychopath. <laughs> right? They, 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 and they're not. They're just reading their workout. But you've set such a weird norm of self-loathing. So I always say, don't do it. Can we, can we just read our workout? Like, instead of, <laughs> instead of like writhing... Like, oh, I'm ugly, I'm ugly. Yeah, we know. Come on. It's fine. Why? D- d- it's please don't. Don't do <laughs> don't, like don't do the like equivalent of just like gagging as you look at your own work. Oh, I'm so sorry to like if you really hate it. Like, like, do you think it's so awful that you're wasting everyone's time and it's offensive for you to be reading it out? Like, did you put so little effort into it? No, then read it out. Just don't, don't do this. Don't do this to us. Like it's not, it's it's not courtesy. It's not a courtesy to go. Oh, it's so awful. Like now, what do you want me to do? Y- yes, it is. You're fishing. Come on. Like it's fine. It's fine to like your work. It's fine to not like your work. But like we don't need the commentary. It's like what do you think we can't 
form our own conclusions about it? Is that what's going on here? You're like, well, I better warn you that it's crap, because otherwise you wouldn't notice, you big idiots. I'm the only person with any taste here. No? Well, then we'll then we'll figure out what we think about it. We don't need you to sort of step in front of the story. Ugh. I don't ever say that. <laughs> I'm only... I'm sort of joking, um, because I do it myself, of course. But, yeah. it's it, I just... I love... I kind of, well, not love, but I find it fascinating the contortions people put themselves through uh, when they read out or when they're in a writing workshop. And we really part of it and why I really enjoy doing retreats where we're there for a week is is just to turn people's attention back onto those bizarre social norms and go, you know, hang on, what are you doing? What are you feeling here? Is this a sensible way to go about it? Or could we just drop all this? Could we stop, you know, is this a game that is serving anyone? Or could we just not play the game and read our stories and get on with making them better? And generally, by the end of the week, people have got better at doing that. And and nothing is lost. People aren't going, you know, the person reads out and doesn't say beforehand, I should, I should be humanely destroyed for writing this, to be honest. Although that is quite a good way to introduce any reading. But, you know, they don't go, oh, yeah, sorry, I didn't really know what I was doing here, but um, here's the here's the thing. Like, it, it, it turns out like that doesn't make them come off as, if they stop saying that, it doesn't make them evil or vain. They're like, it's fine. It's fine. You're fine. Let's <laughs> Let's move on. Right, so this is the little bit that I think, like, maybe typifies the uh, vicar construction. It's from a chapter called In These Uncertain Times. It was February 1974. The sun was setting on Lubang Island in the Philippines and Lieutenant Hiru Onoda was creeping out of the jungle to pick jackfruit. He had been hiding in the same spot for three days and his food supplies had run out. The jackfruit grove stood at the point where two rivers met, not far from a banana field. It was a good place to scavenge for food but the island police knew that too. Lieutenant Anoda had been trained in guerrilla warfare. He slept under the stars, brushed his teeth with palm tree fibres and kept his rifle from rusting by polishing it with palm oil. He was used to crawling into paddy fields, disguising his thefts by only taking a little unshelled rice from each husk. On this day, knowing that islanders might be searching for him, he waited until dusk, camouflaged his jacket and hat with leaves and twigs and crept down the hill towards the trees. As he approached the water, he noticed something large and white hanging from the branches. With a start, he realised it was a mosquito net. He was indignant. Someone was camping between him and his food. Reckoning that the net was only big enough for two, he resolved to rush the camp with a surprise attack. He could knock one of them out, then best the other in hand-to-hand combat. He cocked his rifle, pressed the knurled cap at the rear end of the bolt with his palm and twisted it to the left, unlocking the safety. As he approached, he came across a man building a fire beside the river. Anoda called out. Normally, the islanders fled at his cries, but to his astonishment, the young man saluted, calling back, I'm Japanese, I'm Japanese. Even more surprising was the young man's question a few moments later. Are you Anoda-san? Anoda was suspicious. There was something fishy about this long-haired boy. He had probably been sent by the enemy. Years ago, the Americans had dropped leaflets across the island, claiming the war was over. 
They had printed fake newspapers and broadcast tapes of real Japanese radio programmes, edited so as to discourage Japanese sympathisers. They'd even gone so far as to send photos of his family, supposedly with news of how they were getting on, but the images were obviously doctored. The caption read, Anoda-san's family, but a neighbour unrelated to him was in the picture, and there was no reason to add San after his name as anyone familiar with Japanese etiquette would have known. Still, the young man did not appear to be armed. If this was a trap, it was a subtle one. Yes, said Anoda, knowing there was little point in lying. I'm Anoda. Really? Lieutenant Anoda? Anoda nodded. The boy was wide-eyed and trembling. He wore a t-shirt, dark blue trousers, rubber sandals and thick woolen socks. This final clothing choice may have saved his life. Socks with sandals were so unlike anything the islanders ever wore, Anoda decided to wait before shooting him. It was just possible he really was Japanese. In a stammering, high-pitched voice, the boy said, I know you've had a long, hard time. The war's over. Won't you come back to Japan with me? Anoda was filled with rage. No, I won't go back. For me, the war hasn't ended. Why? You wouldn't understand. How could he? The young man, whose name was Norio Suzuki, hadn't trained as a commando under Captain Shigatomi, who drilled his men constantly in suicide attack manoeuvres, who was fond of slapping you in the face and calling you backer, idiot whose favourite expression had been better to sweat on the training ground than to bleed on the battleground. This long-haired kid hadn't survived for nearly 30 years on an island less than half the size of the Isle of Wight, moving constantly, burying ammunition, enduring rats, rainy seasons and endless American attempts at deception, preparing for the inevitable Japanese counterattack that would liberate him. He hadn't watched his two comrades, Shimada and Kazuka, get killed in shootouts with police. Norio Suzuki was from a completely different world. And here he was saying the war was over. Come out of the jungle. Lay down your rifle. He might as well have plucked a fish from the river and told it to fly. Some of us have a hard time believing that the war is over. Neuroscientist Alexander Shackman pointed me towards a 2015 meta-analysis of nearly a century of anxiety research which found that people with anxiety disorders showed a, quote, small yet robust pattern of overgeneralization of the fear responses to safe cues, end quote. The authors found it isn't that anxiety sufferers are more afraid in stressful situations, but we have a harder time learning that a situation is safe. If we fear one thing, we generalise that fear to something similar more easily, we find it harder to suppress our feelings of fear, and it takes us longer to extinguish fears in safe situations. This can be adaptive under certain circumstances. Neuroscientist Ollie Robinson was involved in a study where participants had to choose between four competing slot machines. He and his fellow researchers found that anxious people were quicker to update their behaviour when a machine wasn't paying out compared to non-anxious people. Anxious people seem to learn from negative outcomes quicker. Psychologist Kate Button's work suggested anxious people are much better than non-anxious people at learning that people don't like them. There are many environments in which updating your behaviour quickly in response to danger and spotting when someone is hostile are highly desirable. We wouldn't suggest a soldier unwilling to skip down a jungle trail twirling an umbrella and whistling had an anxiety disorder. In a theatre of war, we'd view such carefree behaviour as evidence of mental collapse. 
When you ask someone with, a, with severe anxiety to give up the behaviours and feelings that have served them this far in life, what you're really asking is for them to adopt habits that, for years, perhaps their whole life, have seemed like insanity. You're asking them to lead with their chin, to step out of cover and expose themselves to snipers. Three weeks after meeting Norio Suzuki, Hiru Onoda finally surrendered to his superior officer, Major Tanaguchi, who, for the past two decades, had been working as a bookseller. Even as Tanaguchi gave the order to stand down, Anoda thought he might lean forward and whisper the real orders. When the secret message did not come, Lieutenant Anoda realised the truth. The war really was over. We might imagine that release from a long, hard war would bring elation. Anoda's country was at peace and prosperous. Finally, he could return home. He was devastated. For 30 years he had cared for his Arisaka Type 99 rifle like a baby, and now he was learning that it was all for nothing. Hiru Onoda does not make for an endearing character. An unapologetic ethno-nationalist, it later emerged he had killed several islanders, a detail he omits from his autobiography, though he does describe robbing several at gunpoint. When he returned home, he donated money from well-wishers to the Yasakuni Shrine, a notorious war monument revered by Japanese nationalists and far-right politicians the world over, which contains the tombs of 14 Class A war criminals. So you, I hope you understand how disturbed I was when, reading about that moment when Hiru Anoda emerged from the jungle to meet Norio Suzuki, I felt as if I understood him exactly. In fact, I've just realised what it made me think of. This is going to sound weird, I guess, because it is. When my wife asked me to marry her, I had a panic attack. She had taken me to a really nice hotel on a spa break. No one had ever done anything like that for me. I didn't expect her to propose. I'd been planning to ask her myself, though I kept delaying. I felt I'd never do it well enough. I kept constructing ever more elaborate scenarios in my head, one sufficiently grand and creative to show how much I loved her, then doubting my ability to pull them off. I was terrified of messing it up. We were outside the hotel, having a drink together. Ducks glided across the mill pond. The setting sun was golden on the water. And she asked me, I know you've had a long, hard time. The war's over. Won't you come home? So thank you for indulging me with that. I hope it's clear why I, I sort of made those choices structurally, because fundamentally the thing I, I wanted to say is, is quite simple, actually, in, in that piece, right? I mean, one of the reasons we might cling onto anxiety is because within it is the comforting illusion that complete safety is technically possible, and it's not. But just stating that like that in those two sentences doesn't have much emotional weight. It might even come across to some people as thunderingly obvious to the point of banality. So we have to slip a horseshoe into our boxing glove before we throw the punch. And that horseshoe, that extra bit of weight, is an anecdote. The specific example. And I think that just works across the board, right? Like, And I think if you try it, and I encourage you to, you, you might feel like you're cheating. You might feel slightly cheesy. You might feel that readers are going to sort of catch you in the act. Um, but, but it generally works. 
it's like for it is a formula but it's a formula that works like just like a sonnet is a formula right the the only challenge is doing it well or not well you know it's picking a good anecdote or an interesting one or just generally a relevant one uh and then including making sure you have various details you know in both the pieces are are read out you know there were some little bits of color so i described sort of moving the i described in sort of detail how he switched the safety off and that meant researching i knew what type of rifle he had and i could just go and research it and see where the safety was and just what he would have to do to switch the safety off because i knew he switched the safety off at that moment um and then i could just describe it in that little bit more detail that he'd be it's a it's a knurled cap on the end and you have to kind of twist it around and you use your thumb and in what direction to do it right not necessary but that is crunchy specificity in action right and and i don't know i don't know anything about guns i don't like guns any more than I know anything about, you know, what type of trees they have in Maudlin College. But I know in A.L. Rouse's book that he mentions that there there's apple blossom, right? Apple blossom is white. I know that they, he talks about tulip bed, beds and those tulips are dark. So then I got to have like white apple blossom and dark tulips and have a little contrast. I'm not patting myself on the back here. I'm just saying all of this stuff, These are I'm, what I'm doing is I'm showing you what I did and encouraging you to do those things to like nick those because they're very blunt to the point of sounding stupid when I say it's like I chose a light thing and a dark thing because we were talking about a time of contrast right I'm not expecting a reader to hear it and go "Ooh, those two things contrast I I don't think they I don't I have no idea what voice I was doing then um (laughs) a easily impressed reader but I think if they were that obvious to anyone listening or reading, they would seem stupid, but they're not really. They're just sort of subtle. I think you can just play with those things. You're allowed to do this. What if I pick this detail? You know, what mood are you trying to to create? And then you you pick stuff that appeals to the, that's concrete. You know, so it's nouns, concrete nouns, and ones that appeal to the reader's five senses. That's it. And I'm, you know, I bang the drum about this. But it's because y'all fuckers don't do it. (laughs) Like, like, do it and your writing will get better. And then I'll shut up about it. Right. When people start doing it. But you you just have to, you know, be conscious of it for a little while first. And it will seem awkward. And then once you've done it, you can start fucking around with it. You can start playing. You can be abstract. And you can do all these sort of uh, sort of like more avant-garde things. in occasion you you can start kind of going buck wild then but to start with let's like nail this because you're going to see your writing sort of level up so much and you, you you're just going to feel super happy because you'll go oh this is me i'm doing it and i'll be like yeah it's easy you just need to know what you're doing it's fine like you'll have a lovely time um now i said i was going to say how this applies to fiction i think i've done that a little bit i hope that you've already made that leap yourself so in a novel uh though you can take all sorts of routes into a story you know you can go broad sweeping storybook time and talk about a country's history or you can expound on principles of human behavior and i i know you know jane austen like famously kind of opened in that way you can do all these sort of things you know nothing is nothing is off limits but i'd say a reliably strong tactic for kicking things off 
in fiction is to start in media res in a scene with a clear protagonist standing at some kind of impasse, facing some kind of decision or challenge. They don't have to be leaping between train carriage roofs as they thunder through a sort of Siberian snowstorm. In the A.L. Rouse example, you know, the conflict was huge, but it was internal. You know, anyone passing by would have just seen a young student standing by the pond in silent contemplation. And, and the conflict doesn't have to be a huge internal conflict either. It can be little. You know, what gloves to wear before the coronation? How do I replace this fused battery pack before the next round of the mech battle tournament? Who left this mysterious parcel on my doorstep? Remember, conflict doesn't necessarily mean open antagonistic strife. I sort of read a lot of people going, not all fiction has to be about conflict, but I think that's because they've got a sort of almost ridiculously narrow definition of conflict. They they think it's a sword fight, and 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 it's not necessary conflict, and and it's not necessarily interpersonal conflict, right? Like it can just mean a challenge, and that challenge is, can I find the answer to this mystery? I want to know something, and I don't know it. That's a conflict, right? That's a challenge. It, it doesn't. It doesn't have to. Can be a conflict. Can be. Ooh, you know. It. It. It's not about people having fisticuffs necessarily. And, and to suggest it is, I think, is to misunderstand, possibly deliberately, the most basic fundamentals of writing. Okay. Like. 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 You can just. You know. It, it, your conflict at the beginning of the story can be, what happened to Mister Taylor's gardening clubs. You can tell a nice little village detective story where no one is in particular peril but you should still start in a clear narrative present you know in the moment where a character is facing a decision or conflict or they notice something's up it doesn't even have to be the conflict that drives the main story perhaps their sponge for the village flower show is baking contest on sunday has just come out of the oven and the middle looks like a meteorite's hit it how will they ever get it done on time oh no you know that's fine that's good you give us the smell of warm sponge as it comes out the oven then oh here's the saggy middle oh no not again that's the third one we're in a story it doesn't matter that the entire story uh you know you're already suggesting like a milieu for these events to happen in and that this character is you know, experiencing some failures and, and, and then we're kind of rooting for them because oh, they really they really wanted to do well this time. It's kind of cool, right? And I, I, I'm, I'm using that genre like kind of like cosy mystery because I think, although like definitionally a lot of cosy detective stories are still like murder stories, but um, I'm just talking super cosy, right? Just to say that this is not bound by genre at all. Like, I think it's just fundamental to how we construct good stories. And and look, we, we've come all of this way. We've walked all these miles just to return to that old saw, show, don't tell. And what I hope I've done here on this episode is shown you why it's good, you know, why this technique works rather than just telling you that it is. You know, the, the v- writing like a vicar, I think is just demonstrably good. And that's why I've tried to show you, because like you'll hear people throw out writing advice and all sorts of do this, don't do that. Don't listen to people who tell you this. And my suggestion is whenever someone gives you writing advice, uh, just see if they can actually demonstrate it. You know, like, do they give examples? Are those examples shite? 
if they can actually show it in practice in a text, maybe in one of their texts, maybe in another, but they can actually point to it and go, what I am talking about happens here, and they can show you the text. And if you read the text and, and think, hmm, that's pretty chill, actually, they're right. Um, I would like to make my writing more like that. Then bingo, you're in. What a great piece of writing advice. If they can't show you it in text, if they just give you the the, the piece of advice without the story, then consider the possibility they are offering advice in good faith, but are unwittingly full of shit. Right, that's it. That's the episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, but not so much that the rest of your life will be an anticlimax. If you dig what I do here, if it's a source of wonder and delight, and you'd like me to be able to continue doing it, please consider buying, and then actually buy, my new book, Coward. Why we get anxious and what we can do about it. It's the story of me trying to beat the panic attacks that had been uh, dogging me for over 10 years and the severe anxiety. And you'll know if you've listened to this podcast for a while that I you know, talk very openly about my mental health. And um, this book was sort of a real attempt for me to tackle it and get well, especially for the sake of my wife and my daughter. And I spoke to loads of researchers and I did loads of research and I tried loads of interventions out on myself and the book is all of that collected together it's not self-help but hopefully it's helpful it's not science but it contains science um and hopefully bits of it are funny so i I, i've put a link in the show notes it's now a bookshop.org link i've set up my own little death of a thousand cuts bookshop where you can find my books books about writing and books by authors on the show and if you buy through that link which is again in the show notes not only are you supporting independent bookshops in the uk who pay their taxes uh presumably but the show gets a little kickback too how great is that pretty great death taxes books together at last so yeah key move click that link buy my book support my career and the show you can also get the book in ebook form and you can get it in audiobook form um second possibility click the link in the show notes to my coffee page or Kofi. I'm assuming it's coffee, right? Like that's the idea. It would be. It's not a, about Kofi Annan. I did room security for Kofi Annan back in 2000 at uh, in in Geneva at the UN. Did you know that? No, you did not know that. You might know it. Knowing me, I've probably told an anecdote about it. But 22 years ago, 20 22 years ago, and I why would why would I be room security? Why why would you hire Tim Clare, a young Tim Clare, as a security guard for Kofi Annan and and Desiree? Desiree did a, a three-song acoustic set. She did life. Anyway, not entirely relevant to this, but yeah, you can go click the link in the show notes to my coffee page. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare and drop me a few beans. Helps to keep the lights on to pay for my hosting costs etc. Finally, if you want non-monetary ways to support me, please subscribe to the show on your podcasting platform of choice. If you're on something like Apple Podcasts, not only can you subscribe, but you could leave a little rating and a review and share the show on social media. You know, tell people about it. They might not know. Okay, we're done here. May blessings rain down upon you like frog spunk in an Oxford pond. You are a wonderful, inherently worthwhile human being just by virtue of being alive. I wish you a wonderful week of writing.